is God's word. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishama of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah. As they ate bread together there at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him, rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, Eighty men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. As he met them, he said to them, Come in to Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam. When they came into the city, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the men with him, slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. But there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. Now the cistern into which Ishmael had thrown all the bodies of the men whom he had struck down along with Gedaliah was the large cistern that King Asa had made for defense against Basha, king of Israel, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. But when Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. They came upon him at the great pool that is in Gibeon. And when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam, soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs whom Johanan brought back from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Geruth Chimham, near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Read that far in God's word. Again, as we return to our study of Jeremiah, let me remind you what's been happening. The context was the fall of Jerusalem. The city walls were leveled. The great temple built by Solomon was burned. Its treasures had been removed. The columns of the temple toppled down. The splendor of the palace reduced to dust and rubble. For 40 years, our friend Jeremiah had been preaching to prevent this very tragedy. But the people would not listen to God. 
the people would not turn to God and obey God. It was, you could say, the death of a nation. Is there any hope? Yes, with God there's always hope. The hope is in the restoration after exile and the resurrection for the dead nation through its coming king. So now in our opening verse of chapter 41, we learn that Ishmael is of royal descent. That's significant, I submit to you. We're also told it's seven months into the governorship of Gedaliah. So we now have a dinner. Two opposite parties represented at the dinner. On the one side, Governor Gedaliah, who represents submitting to God's plan of exile and Babylonian takeover, followed by a promised restoration 70 years later. On the other side is this character, Ishmael, who represents immediately going back to God's previous plan of having a king in the line of David to be the one to rise up and defend Jerusalem the old-fashioned way with a sword. And God's remaining people in Jerusalem need that protection, even to take Jerusalem by force if necessary. So we have the two parties. And in verse 1, we have the opposite groups gathered, all genteel, in one meal. Now, you may remember that ancient customs of meal hospitality were very robust and insistent. The host for a meal was obligated to protect the guests in his home, and the guests were expected to reciprocate with equal goodwill towards their host. The fact that two opposing parties were gathered at one meal should not present alarm in and of itself. Rather, it should be a sign of goodwill and good faith that the heir of the throne had humbly come to pay his respects to the new appointed governor, and that the meal is meant to show that this potential king had submitted to God's plan, God's plan for Babylon to take over, God's plan for Babylon to appoint this governor, and the rightful king was at the meal in order to cooperate in patience and full unity with the whole plan. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? This is a peaceful, beautiful thing. The meal, fitting with the main message of God through Jeremiah, fits with the title of the sermon, True Hope by Exile, and it's stated more fully in the main point of this sermon. If you're reading your handout, it reads like this. Once the exile started, true hope was found only by submitting to God's plan, exile and restoration, which pointed to the true King Jesus and his death and resurrection. So back to our story, these two sides breaking bread together. One side, false hope, overly patriotic, rising up, grabbing a sword, taking back their city. The other side, True hope, following God's humbling plan for sinners who must now accept exile, knowing that restoration is coming in God's good time. A beautiful scene, two sides, having dinner in peace, opposing views. You know what can ruin a beautiful banquet? You know what can ruin a serene scene? Sin. (laughs) You know, just basic old-fashioned sin. You know what sort of sin? False hope, the sin of putting hopes in wrong things, the sin of not submitting to God's way and hoping in that alone, the sin of not listening to God, the sin of not obeying God, the sin of not trusting God, the sins of lying and trickery, that sort of sin. Ishmael was a warning to us about how that sort of sin functions in ourselves, but we'll get to that in a moment. Our first point. Ishmael faked breaking bread in unity with Babylon's appointee and instead broke all laws of hospitality to kill him. So now we're at verse 2. 
At some point during this wonderful unifying meal, smiles, past the butter, I don't know, right? The, the meal's going on. And at some point, Ishmael must have stood up, drew his sword, and killed Gedaliah. And it goes down from there. It's like picking a fight with all of Babylon again. Because the king of Babylon is the one who had appointed Gedaliah governor over this region now. It's like picking a fight with God. Because God told his people to submit to Babylon in this whole process. Verse 2, Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam, son of Shaphan, is given all those words, all those titles. We're reminded where he comes from because it reminds us that he's from a long line of godly people who supported the prophet Jeremiah. (laughs) The loss of Gedaliah would become a tragedy again, as if we're short on tragedies for this poor nation. For years after this, they actually held a fast to lament the passing of Gedaliah. Remember the whole standoff, as we studied before, between Jeremiah and each king? It's all being played out here again. Do you stand for God and his word and his prophet, or do you stand for this king who's got a sword in his hand? Verse 3, Ishmael's next step was to kill more of his own fellow countrymen who were there. He even killed the Babylonian soldiers who were there that day. I guess he would have had to, right? So our passage is a crime scene. It's a crime scene inside of a war, which follows by foreign occupation because Jerusalem had just been overtaken months prior. So our passage is a violent mess. Instead of saying active shooter like we're too used to saying today, they would have to say something like active slayer because they would use a sword instead of a gun, but he's still at it. I'm not Gedaliah, but Ishmael is on the loose with his swords. Why is this in the Bible? We have a shortage of crime scenes to study. For our instruction. We need to learn something about ourselves and about the human problem from this passage. We need to learn to recognize the flesh and how it functions in our own hearts, in our lives, and in society in each generation. We need to learn to recognize that. We're all like Adam. We're all like Ishmael. We're all like Herod. We're all like Zedekiah, previous king. We're all like Judas in our sin nature. So we have an assassination that took place during a meal. It's in the Bible because it shows us who Ishmael is. Ishmael would not listen to God. He was operating in his own sinful flesh. Whenever we're tempted to disobey God, we can read this chapter and imagine a mini-movie playing out of the damage we are doing when we disobey God. Because... It's not likely that you're involved in some gruesome, violent scene such as this, but the dynamics are the same. The impact has a wide-reaching effect because we all live in community, and it affects community. We all have the same two choices as Ishmael had, obey God or not. Didn't Jeremiah tell us in these famous words back in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Fast forward beyond our crime scene. Same city. Another decade in Jerusalem. Take you to the days of Jesus. We read recently in the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2 how King Herod was threatened by the news that this baby would be born as king. So he tried to kill Jesus 
And to do so, he killed every baby boy across Bethlehem's area. Now fast forward again, 30 years to the end of that baby's life, the adult Jesus. Later, Matthew chapter 26, he would sit and break bread with his disciples. The scene of a meal and breaking bread. Sound familiar? It's like what we have in our passage. Now, Jesus says this in Matthew 26, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And what did, Jesus, what did Judas do? Judas Iscariot, like Ishmael of old, betrayed his master while they were having a meal together. It was then that Jesus lovingly showed us what was in God's plan. Right then, Jesus instituted the gift of the Lord's Supper that we still enjoy. Jesus is the one who will never betray us at that meal. The opposite of killing us, he actually saved us. The supper of Jesus displays not death, but life. Jesus died for our sins that we might live. That's the true hope. We press forward. Go to verse 4 in our second point. Ishmael lied, faked weeping in repentance and faked placing hope in God afresh in order to kill 70 worshipers. So verse 4, we now have a serial killer. Ishmael woke up the next day and 80 people were coming from the countryside areas on their way to make an offering to the Lord. They're responding to the destruction of Jerusalem with repentance. Finally, After poor Jeremiah preached for four decades, we finally have some people responding with repentance. They're turning to God as they should. Here came 80 men in grief over the spiritual condition of their country. Verse 5, these men are from three famous places, Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria, all important religious locations in the north. They knew the temple had been destroyed, and yet the location, the temple mount, was still considered to be a holy spot. So they wanted to come and bring their worship there, their offerings there. They didn't bring animals. They simply brought what would be allowed to be placed in the mount there, the grain and incense. So they're coming in the Old Testament way to worship, showing grief over their sin with beard shaved, clothes torn, grain offerings, incense, seeking the Lord. So what does our serial killer do? Verse 6, Ishmael faked joining the worshipers, faked grieving over his sin too, faked weeping as a trick to approach them, these poor, unsuspecting 80 people. Then Ishmael straight up lied when he says, you see in verse 6, come to Gedaliah. Quiz class, where's Gedaliah? Ishmael well knows he just killed him the prior day. So it's a lie to the poor people, and they fell for it, of course. Verse 7, the 80 people were led into the city. Seventy of them were killed, their bodies thrown into a cistern, which is simply a large hole in the ground for storing water or storing grain. Why not 80? Verse 8 tells us, the only people that Ishmael spared were 10 who had supplies that he needed, and they offered it to him as a bribe in order to save their lives. Who's to say he didn't kill them later? It shows us that Ishmael is not killing people out of some holy principle. He would spare people if it would benefit him. He's just straight up wicked. He's operating out of the sinful flesh. So our second crime scene shows us something further about Ishmael. Our author is guiding us to grow a deeper distaste for Ishmael as the chapter unfolds. 
Ishmael was attempting to disrupt God's plans for restoring his people after the exile. How beautiful it was that God had now drawn 80 people to repentance. It's a good start for a completely unrepentant nation. But Ishmael is working against God's plans and kills 70 of them. Ishmael is what you could call an anti-David. King David was a man after God's own heart. King David was patient and would not kill Saul in order to secure the throne for himself. David did not fight God's plans, but fulfilled God's plans. King David gathered such repenting people all around him. And David protected the lives of that small band of people. David did not fake weeping with the people. He, he wept with people for real over his own sins, and he led them in worship to God and repentance. He even wrote psalms about it, such as Psalm 51, tearing himself up about his own sins. He led the people in coming to God in worship and repentance, and Ishmael came from the line of David, but couldn't be more different than the real David. He's the anti-David, and it points us to Jesus because he's the true son of David, Fast forward again to that future crime scene that unfolded when Jesus himself was being led away to his own death. We find how different Jesus was from Ishmael in this crime scene. Jesus turned people to God. Listen to it from Luke 23, 26. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Luke 23, 26 to 28. Why did Jesus say to the daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for Jesus, but instead weep for themselves? It's because Jesus was innocent. Though he would die for the sins of others, he would rise again. He's not in true danger. There's no need to weep for Jesus. He's holy and godly and walking in unity with God the Father. But the sinning people are the ones who are in true spiritual danger. And if you're going to weep, weep for yourselves. Ishmael killed people who were genuinely weeping. Who should we weep for? The people or the serial killer? Jesus told those weeping for the wrong reason how to weep for the right reason. Then Jesus went to the cross to save them from their sins. Ishmael's the anti-David. Ishmael's the anti-Jesus. Ishmael's the anti-Christ. Now, I'm not making some big announcement here as if there's only a solo one anti-Christ you know from Scripture that there's many antichrists who came into the world. 1 John 2.18, many antichrists have come. Anyone who's against David is an anti-David. Anyone who's against Christ is an antichrist. The Lord wrote this for us so plainly. But who are these people who are against God? They're people who lie about their repentance. They're people who fake worship. They're people who disobey God. There are people who lead God's worshipers away from God. There are people who fake weeping. There are people who spiritually are like dry wood. They light up quick in the Lord's judgment. 
There are people who have no idea how to lament for a person properly. No idea how to lament for themselves properly. There are people who have no idea how to lament properly for a nation. That's the Antichrists. Those are the people against God. This chapter shows us a society that will not listen to God descending into deeper and deeper disorder. We are living through that ourselves. People will not listen to God the Creator when He designs male and female, when He designs marriage, when He asks us to support lives, not end lives. People are serving themselves, not serving God, not serving others. Water cisterns are supposed to be filled with water, not dead bodies. Something's off. We have similar scenes throughout our generation. When people will not listen to the Creator God, public life enters total disarray. The story of mayhem reminds us of the days of Judges. What was the core problem in the days of Judges? Each person did what was right in his own eyes. What's another way to say that? Each person did not do what was right in God's eyes. Each person did not listen to God, did not obey God. We press on to my third point from verse 10 and following. Ishmael opposed God's plan by taking captives. Now we're talking slavery. And then escaping to join the opposing force, leaving God's people to struggle with fear and flee where there was no hope. Verse 10, we're told that among the slaves that Ishmael took were the daughters of the previous king, so we have princesses. We can also safely conclude that the slaves of Ishmael probably took Jeremiah. Maybe I'll show that to you in chapter 42. Probably also Jeremiah's scribe, Baruch. But what was Ishmael's plan? We're told in verse 10 to cross over, which means he was going to the Ammonites not just for a visit. He was leaving. He was realigning with another enemy army of God's. To cross over to the Ammonites means to oppose God, to oppose God's plan, to oppose God's people. Verse 11, we can trace how God began to respond by raising up a mini-deliverer a mini-David, if you will, a mini-hero named Johanan who rescued some of God's people. Verse 12, there was someone to stand up to the wickedness at a location called the Pool of Gibeon, which has ramifications back to First and Second Samuel. In verse 13, the people rejoiced. Verse 14, the captives of Ishmael returned because of Johanan. Verse 15, Ishmael escaped with eight men. If you'll notice back in verse 1, he had ten, so Ishmael must have lost two guys along the way. Verse 16, Johanan looks like King David a little bit. When he gathered the remaining soldiers, women, and children, he brought back from Gibeon. But the people were still scared after what Ishmael had done. Verse 17 says they intended to go to Egypt. Eh, wrong answer. You don't go to Egypt. Verse 18 says they're afraid of what the Babylonians would do in retaliation because Ishmael killed the leader appointed by Babylon. Well, understand that. But Egypt represents false hope. They should never turn to Egypt. They should turn to God. They've learned that previously, even in our study of Jeremiah. They must have been scared. But they should have remembered anyway. There's no hope over in Egypt. They can't protect you because the problem's not Babylon. The problem is God. Your sins against the holy God that she's been trying to tell you about for 40 years... And now he's trying to tell you about through the exile. Submit to God. Turn to God. Don't turn to Egypt. The only true hope in the Lord God of Israel, he instructed them to submit. And even now, Babylon would be stirred up. Sure, they'd be stirred up. But they should trust in God and submit to his plan 
through the forces of Babylon, despite the forces of Babylon. This is no time to turn away from God and God's plan and in fear turn to Egypt. There's no true hope over in Egypt. True hope is in God's exile and his plan through Babylon. The restoration is coming. So who can we follow in this passage? We, we can't follow Governor Gedaliah. He wasn't even wise enough to think that in the heart of man somebody might want to assassinate him. Wouldn't have it. We can't follow him. A, because he's wrong. B, because he got murdered. We can't follow Ishmael. He fiercely opposed Babylon, fought for independence. It all looks patriotic, but it amounts to bloodshed. And it's disobedient to God at its core. We can't even follow Johanan because he opts for Egypt. He leads people to trust in the external power of Egypt. That's never going to be acceptable for God. We have to follow God and his prophet Jeremiah and the words that God is giving to us to understand the scene, understand the war, understand the crime scenes, understand all of this world. The spokesperson Jeremiah has been saying it for decades. Listen to God. That's who we follow. We follow God. God is saying that his people must submit to his plan for exile and restoration. Submit to Babylon's king. Submit to Babylon's appointee. Don't kill him. The only hope for Israel is that after the judgment of exile, God gives restoration. After God's judgment of crucifixion, God gives resurrection. Never are they to turn to Egypt. Never are they to become brutal fighters. Never are they to assume that all people are good and throw caution to the wind. They're supposed to realize God is serious enough about sin to cause an exile and is merciful enough to give them restoration. That's who God is. The people have to trust the God who sent them Jeremiah as the spokesman, the official spokesman for God. The people must trust that God is serious enough about sin to send his son Jesus to and put him to death for those sins to actually cleanse them. After crucifixion, God is powerful enough and just enough to bring resurrection to Christ and by faith in him, resurrection to all of us. Who can we follow? We follow the true king in the story, the one who's coming, the Lord Jesus How do we follow? We trust in him when mayhem breaks loose. Any generation. We obey God, not our own sense of what we ought to do. We turn to God to protect us. We never turn to Egypt. We never turn to the Ammonites. We never turn to ourselves. Conclusion is that God warned all other hopes are false hopes. The only true hope for Israel was that after exile's restoration, after crucifixion, is a resurrection. I have four application points to us. Number one, don't be so shocked to see modern actions of ruthless depravity in our generation. You know, when people slaughter and massacre other people. Don't be so shocked. Don't be naive like Gedaliah was in chapter 40 to ignore the warnings about assassination as if no one would ever. And the warnings in chapter 41 to sit down at dinner with the man threatening assassination. Don't be naive like Gedaliah. And don't make the other mistake of Gedaliah. Not consulting Jeremiah. 
when you're trying to decide whether Ishmael is capable of this, why not ask Jeremiah? It never happened. You notice that doesn't occur in our chapter? We don't turn to the Scriptures for understanding our constant string of active shooters. It makes us naive. What is the biblical answer? Are you ready? The biblical answer for why we have active shooters? Everybody's asking. Every news broadcast, why do we have this? Why does this keep happening? The Bible gives us the answer. These sins of hatred and violence, now even being perpetrated by the children apparently, have resided in the heart of man since Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden and Cain killed his brother Abel when he's supposed to be his brother's keeper. It's from the start the case that every human is capable of this. That's how the Apostle Paul explained it to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 2, that people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without control, brutal, and the list goes on. 2 Timothy 3, 2. Paul then could write to Christians in verse 10, same chapter, 2 Timothy 3, 10, you, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and jump to verse 14. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. 2 Timothy 3.14. Don't be naive. We know why the shootings are happening. Number two, we need to learn to recognize the flesh and how it functions in our own hearts and our lives. Again, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our own fallen human natures deceive us and mislead us. This chapter is a reminder of your flesh at work. This chapter is a reminder that you can't overcome your own lies on your own. Your heart lies to you. You tell yourself lies. And you can't get out of that loop on your own. You're going to need God to break in with his truth. Chapter 41 is a mirror in which we see ourselves. Our sin nature is reflected with shocking clarity. We can do a lot of damage to ourselves and to our community. We could be eating a meal with others, smiling. Next minute, rise from the table, draw a sword, begin a slaughter. And I'm not saying physically. But the scene is there, and the lessons are clear. The chapter reveals what's tucked in our hearts. Have you ever been furiously angry? Have you ever hated someone? Have you ever spoken against someone? And so on. This is us. God said to Cain before the murder, God said to Cain before the first murder, listen carefully what God said to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Genesis 4, 7. Guess what happened in the next verse? Cain killed Abel. The thing is, we can't rule over our own sin. We can't rule over our own hearts. We can't take control of our minds and give us truth instead of lies. We need a Savior. And have I got good news for you? Number three, put your hope in Christ crucified and risen again for us. All other hopes are false hopes. You can't redeem yourself. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of uh, God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you 
to repentance? Romans 2.4. God is calling us to repent and turn to Christ and believe on him alone as our only hope, even in the most desperate of generations, the most desperate of times, through the Bible and through history and through American history. God has always kept his promises for his people. Listen to how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're being transformed to the image of Christ himself. We're being made like Christ by his grace. Our hope is not that we're better than other people. I would never. That's not biblical. I would always. But by the grace of God, he's transformed me so that I would not. We don't make better decisions than other people. We simply receive grace. We don't have false hope. We don't have pride. Our hope is that we, the very same type of wicked sinners as Ishmael and everybody else, are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. We're being converted. We're being sanctified. That is our hope. That is our only hope. What does God want us to do? Repent, turn to Christ, trust in him, hope in him, crucified and risen. That was our third and our fourth and last. Expect the church to continue despite a crumbling society. Expect the church to continue, despite a crumbling society. Jesus said it in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18, words of God, words of Scripture, the words spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Even after severe consequences came upon a people in ancient Jerusalem, they still wouldn't change. And yet God shows grace and he fulfills his promises. The exile happened, the restoration happened, and he proceeded with the next steps of his plan. God has a plan for his people and there's nothing that can stop it. Absolutely nothing. So as discouraged as we get about our day, about our generation, about the news... Let's not, as Christians, lose our ground of the facts of Scripture that no matter what happens in society, God upholds his church. Chapter 41 of Jeremiah shows that even in the tragic story of sin and decline, sin after exile, people are not changed. Yet the church, God's people as a whole, are upheld. The church is purified. The church received God's protection and blessing. Let's pray.